Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Before I read the opening verses of uh, Mark chapter 11, I want to read one other very brief passage that I'm going to tie in with the Mark 11 passage. And this is from Exodus 20, where God gives the Jewish people the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 opens with these words, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments. And now here is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, Tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together again. Our Father, you have, you have made us to where we're not satisfied with anything in this life. You've made us for eternity. And you've given us souls that cannot be fed just with physical bread. You tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we come with hungry souls asking for nourishment now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. When God gave the Ten Commandments through Moses to the Jewish people, it was at a time when they had been living for 400 years in Egypt. And the Egyptian culture had encouraged devotion to many gods, and they had been influenced to a certain degree by that. But the God of Israel commands exclusive devotion to himself. And so in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The term before me literally means to my face. You shall have no other gods to my face. It's the idea of being married, of a man being married, and while he is married, taking a second wife and bringing her into the household. It is a breach of an exclusive personal relationship. And so God's main idea in that first commandment is clear. He wants you and me to worship him and him only. He wants to be first in your life. Nothing is to be placed before him. 
No person, no thing, no philosophy, no purpose, no plan, no other gods before me, he commands. We worship exclusively him for our own good because he knows you like no other since he created you. He knows the yearnings of your heart. He knows what can satisfy you. And so to bow down before any other god, to bow down either physically or just mentally, is like worshiping a mannequin. That is why in the Psalms, in Psalm 115, the psalmist says, as he describes idols, he says, their idols are silver and gold. They're made out of these precious metals, the work of man's hands. And then he says, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see, and so forth. In modern day language, what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 115 is during difficult times, you want a God who is all-powerful and is all-knowing and knows you personally. But despite God's command, not only the people in Jerusalem there in Mark 11, but especially us today, we today violate this command constantly, and we worship idols. Let me explain. And I think there are a lot of keen observations in Counterfeit Gods, the book Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. We tend to think of idolatry as pictured by primitive people bowing before statues and idols. It was that way in New Testament times in the Greco-Roman world. They had many, many deities. There was Aphrodite, the god of beauty. There was Ares, the god of war. There was Artemis, or Diana, the goddess of fertility and wealth. Here in America, in our contemporary society, we're really not different from those ancient ones. We are dominated by our own idols, and we have shrines where we worship. They may be the office building, or the spa, or the gym, or the studio, or the stadium. It's there we go and we make our sacrifices. So theologians through the ages have said that the human heart is an idol factory. Your heart, my heart, will produce idols. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, God says of the elders of Israel, these were the shepherds, these were the ones who were supposed to be leading God's people. He says of them, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And we may look around and say, idols? Idols here in America? Idols here in Macon? I don't see any idols. Well, God says our hearts, like the Israelite elders, can take good things, very good things, like love or possessions, even family, and we can turn those into things that we worship. And our hearts will deify them as the center of our lives because we think it's through them we gain significance and security and provision and protection and fulfillment. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential in your life that should you lose it, you would really question whether life was worth living. Let me say that again. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential in your life that should you lose it, your life in your mind would hardly be worth living. 
So that counterfeit God might be your health. Some saying, well, I'd rather be dead than be in that condition. It could be your appearance. It could be your life savings, that if you were to lose it, you'd think, well, my life is over. It could be your family. It can be your church. It can be your career. It can be your reputation in the eyes of others. Well, if I were to lose that, life would hardly be worth living. Your reputation, your gifts, your abilities, your natural abilities, your ability to hear, your ability to see and to speak, almost anything, almost anything, any good thing can become the chief object of our affections and therefore of our worship. Now, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? I hope that question has traced through your mind. What does this have to do with Mark 11? I believe, it's my opinion, that what led up to the crucifixion of Jesus was the sin of idolatry. And let me explain. Back to Mark 11. It was Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. This was the day, this was the... The first day of the week, the Jewish calendar, remember the last day of the week, what we call Saturday, was the the day of worship. The first day of the week, what we call Sunday, was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Events would culminate whereby the end of that week, five days later, he would be arrested and crucified. Now, what was going on in Jerusalem? It was the annual Passover season. It's a season, these feasts and uh, these ceremonies that happened annually to commemorate the Passover from the Old Testament when God had delivered his people from from Egypt, all these people would come to Jerusalem. The population would more than triple. When populations triple like that in a short amount of time, you typically have uh, crime, fights, tension, and so those in charge, the Romans, would also bring in many more soldiers out of fear and concern to keep the order in Jerusalem. So the military would be on special alert during this time. And now we we read where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. What's interesting is you study the life of Jesus. Throughout most of his ministry, he withdrew from crowds. Now, yes, there was a sermon on the mount. There would be times he spoke to multitudes... But he was not, his main ministry was not to big crowds. It was more to the disciples and things that happened along the way. So he had withdrawn from crowds, but now all that changes on this day. He is purposefully going public. He's intentionally going to draw attention to himself. And all of this was very premeditated, and it's all part of his plan. What we see here is that Jesus enters Jerusalem as a king. Now, in Webster's Dictionary, he says a king is a male monarch of a major territorial unit. A king is one who inherits his position and rules for life. Kings aren't elected. There are no term limits with kings except by murder, typically, in the past. There were no term limits like we know of. So we as modern Americans know very little except what we've read, perhaps, of what it means to live under the domination of a a king. Some of them are good. Others in history have been quite cruel and ruthless. Now, Israel, the nation of Israel, did not always have kings. We know that they started back with King Saul, and then David, and then his son Solomon, and then Israel split into a northern and a southern kingdom, and you have 
19 kings over these, you have 20 over these, and most were all bad. So how did they originally get a king? Well, I'm not going to read it, but I hope you will read it later. It's an entire chapter in the Old Testament devoted to this. It comes in 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> but I can paraphrase it for you. I can tell you what happened. God's spokesman at that time was a man named Samuel. He was a prophet. And God would, God would carry out his will often in those times by having a designated prophet. And that Samuel was the man. The elders of Israel, the spiritual shepherds of Israel, came to Samuel and they said, we want a king to rule over us. We want to be like all these other surrounding nations that have kings. We want a king. Samuel is not happy. But he prays to God about it. And God allows them to have a king. But he tells them from the front end, you will regret it. You think you want it, but you will not be happy once you have it. Isn't that true of most of us? Many things we choose. Well, why did they want a king? In 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 6, basically it says they wanted a king to give them provision and to give them protection and to give them direction. Provision, protection, and direction. Who is supposed to meet those things in your life? God is. So in reality, and it tells us in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 8, in reality, by requesting a king, they are rejecting God's kingship over them. I only imagine they're thinking, we want a king we can see. Yeah, sure, God does. We want somebody we can see. We want someone who's tangible before us that will provide and protect and lead. But there are problems with a king that you can see, and God describes for them the problems they're going to have with this king. And so in verses 12 to 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, he gives the reasons why you will later regret this. He says, He will take your sons, and he will place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. It's like, we want a great army like the, those nations around us. And God's saying, where do you think the soldiers are going to come from? He's going to, he's going to take your sons from your families to put them in his military. He will take your daughters, it goes on to say, for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and he will use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. We see the great wealth of royalty. Where does that wealth come from? Family business? No. They've taken it from their subjects. Maybe it was taken centuries ago. But they did not produce this. And that's what God is saying. You want a king that will rule over you and direct and look impressive? Where do you think he's going to, he's going to, where he's going to get the royalty? He's going to get it from you. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Now, I've never been there, but I had a man after the first service tell me he has. And that's the Hampton Court in England. Kings and queens of England and Great Britain. Hampton Court was given to Henry VIII in 1525. How many of you, have y'all ever been there? You might be, oh, oh, several. Well, you could, you could come up here. I could interview you and tell you. But I've read that when James I spent Christmas there in 1601, he had a party. 
And the 1,200 guest rooms were not enough, so they had to put tents on the lawns. 1,200 rooms. Where did that come from? Well, the fellow after the first service said, well, Chip, you don't know, but the, the Church of England built it. They took it. Then they gave it to King Henry VIII as a gift. I'm sure with no strings attached. But how does royalty get riches? They take it. He will take. That's what God says. We think an earthly king will give us the protection and provision and direction that we so desire, but they do not. They do not give that. They are there for you and me to serve. How easy it is to glamorize how life would be so wonderful if we just did not get so strapped down with God's will. <laughs> That's what we see here. Well, look at the king Jesus is. So we, like Israel, often want a king, and we want security, and we want provision. And we want someone who can help us make tough decisions, who can provide for us. And we want someone to protect us from our enemies. We want a king, don't we? In our personal lives, well, Jesus is the king you want. Let me tell you why. It tells us here in Mark that walking in front of his disciples, they come to this village, these two villages, Bethphage and Bethany, which are about two miles from Jerusalem. And while they're there, he sends two disciples on ahead up into Jerusalem, or there in the village. He tells them, gives them these special instructions about a donkey, and they go and they get the donkey and bring it back. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey? Uh, I mean, wouldn't a silver stallion been a little more impressive if you want to declare that you're a king? Well, let me, let me surprise you with a couple of, of background items of information. There were two reasons he rode a, a donkey. One was it fulfilled prophecy. 500 years before this happened, Zechariah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Also, the second reason he rode on a donkey, contrary to what we may think today, is in those days, in, at least in Old Testament times, riding on a donkey was a kingly act. King David rode on a donkey. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so it told, it told his choice of a donkey, told all these people who he was and it also proclaimed what he was like, because as Zechariah had prophesied about the Messiah who would come on a donkey, he called him gentle and humble riding on a donkey. How different from earthly kings. He came bringing peace. 750 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come as the Prince of Peace. The angels at his birth said on earth, Peace to men on whom his favor rests. And now he rides into Jerusalem on an animal of peace. And he tells his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do you have peace? Do you have real peace? Lasting peace. I'm not talking about a pain-free life or peace that only comes when, when all of your physical needs are met. I'm talking about deep peace, peace of conscience, peace in your relationship with God that therefore gives you peace with others. Only the king can give you that. We all need that. We need a Messiah. One who can make you right with God. This one has said, all have fallen in sin and fall short of the glory of God. His word says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And the verse in Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God with, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he comes writing purposefully, intentionally, and his purpose is not the overthrow of Rome. That is what these people were expecting. That is what his own disciples were still expecting. We find them, even in his last days, still thinking that he's going to set up an earthly reign and finally break the backs of their oppressors, the Romans. But that was not his purpose. And so he enters into Jerusalem in verses 7 to 10 there in Mark 11. All eyes are focused on him. It tells us that not only had his disciples flung their cloaks on the donkey for him to sit on, but they began to fling their robes on the ground as a gesture of reference. Now, a cloak to them was far more valuable than a cloak is to you and me. And it was an expression. It was an expression saying, I give you everything, even to trample my property, if you so desire. So it is an act of submission when they do this. And then it tells us that they wave palm branches. John chapter 12 gives us another insight. It says, They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! The palm branches were a nationalistic sign of the Jews. It was a sign to be delivered. I guess it, uh, the only way I can imagine this, as I thought about this this week, is that let's say America was under some dictatorial oppressors that came in and ruled over us. And that to show our fervor to see the backs broken of our oppressors, we would all hold little American flags. So there would be, be political dynamite. That's what they were doing with the palm branches. It just wasn't a sweet gesture. It was an insult to the Romans, and it was an anticipation that this is going to happen. You are going to deliver us now. Mark tells us as he came that those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, and they shouted the word, Hosanna. Luke tells us also, all the gospel writers talk about this. Hosanna was a customary greeting at Passover, and it meant to the word save or save us. Mark tells us those who went ahead, as Jesus was on the donkey, those behind, they shouted. So there was this chant. We have organ pipes in the balcony. And so sometimes when the organist plays, you'll hear it come from there, you'll hear it come from here. And so that was the sound of the people as Jesus made his way on that donkey down this narrow street going down to Jerusalem. You had people in front shouting, Hosanna! You had people in the back, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to God in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed. And you can only imagine the sound that would have been reverberating from that as this multitude is shouting this back and forth around Jesus. So they are saying, save us! Save us! Save us! The Bible says there is no other Savior but Jesus. Salvation is not found in a pastor or a bishop or a guru or anyone else in the world. Acts 4, 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So have you recognized that and confessed it? Now, it may look that this is all genuine worship. Jesus received it as such. But given the events of the next few days, it's my opinion that they very much misunderstood what was happening. They expected a political ruler. 
They expected this Messiah to be a political, a national deliverer, a military king who would break the yoke of the Roman Empire. But that was not his plan. And I think it's for that reason he was later hated and he was despised. Have you ever had high expectations for another person? Maybe someone you've never met and you kind of visualize them a certain way, you anticipate certain things happen, and then they did not meet your expectations and you not only dislike them, you might even grow up felt like, I hate that person. Let me give you a very old analogy. I saw a documentary some time ago of when the Beatles first came in the 1960s to New York City. And the, the documentary is in black and white, and they were interviewing these teenage girls, some of the multitude that had, to, uh, had turned out to see them. And these girls apparently had waited in bad weather outside of a hotel along with a multitude of others, hoping to at least get a glance of George and John and Ringo so as they came out of the hotel going to their limousine. It was about a 25-yard walk from the hotel door. There. As they waited... They were in a hurry, so they went from the, the Beatles went from there to the, to the limo, limo and never even looked in the direction of all these girls that were shouting. And I saw the tape or the film of them interviewed moments after it happened. They said, we waited all night long. We waited. All they had to do was look in our direction. They didn't even look. We hate the Beatles. What happened? Unmet expectations. That's what happened. Today, we want Jesus on our terms. In Mark 11, Palm Sunday, they wanted the Messiah on their terms, a military deliverer. But that's not who he was. That's not why he came. That's not what we want today. I don't think in America, we don't hear anyone saying, I just want God to deliver us, deliver us from our oppressors. Not like this, anyway. Not like they were looking to. But we have many other idols some want the make-me-happy Messiah. Someone has said, in order to know the true idol of your own heart, ask yourself, what do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to feel joyful and to get some degree of comfort in the privacy of your heart? That's a very revealing set of questions. So some want the make-me-happy Messiah. God, I'll believe in you. I'll, I'll do anything religious. You know, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll even tithe. I'll give money. I'll, I'll do such and such as long as you'll make me happy. I sat with a guy one time who was on the, well, he was going through a divorce. He was in terrible emotional shape. He was weeping, beating the floor in the office where I sat with him. And I said, well, why don't, and he looked at me, he said, all I want is for God to fix it. Pray and ask God to fix it. I said, fix that sounds like a leaky faucet. You know, you don't get here. I just make me happy. Just fix my life, God, and I'll follow you. Second, some of us may desire the Messiah of health and wealth. One mark of an idol is you tend to spend too much money on it relative to what you have. And so you're constantly exercising self-control to keep from spending more money on it. And often our patterns of spending can be very good indicators of the gods in our life. And we may try and worship God as long as he delivers, and we want that health and wealth. I told something at the first service I've never mentioned to you in all the years I've been the pastor here. I don't know why, but I 
But I, when I was a senior in high school, I had just begun following Christ. I really wanted to be his disciple. And I was really growing. God was doing some remarkable things in transforming my desires and my, my whole life. And I had several friends that were going through the same thing. God was kind of moving within our high school. And there was a fellow, a friend of mine, he was a year behind me in school. And we had been, in a, been talking about the Lord for a long time. And so I called one day at school, I said, why don't you come overnight and let's talk about some of the things we're going through. So he was to be at my house at a certain time. It was the winter, it was dark. And at about the time he was to arrive, I get this phone call from a neighbor who's in a panic saying, come quick, Curtis has run over a boy down from your house. I get in my car, drive about half a mile down just as the ambulance is leaving and there's great commotion in the street. I can't find my friend, so I go to the hospital thinking he might be there. I go to the, the, the corridor leading to the emergency room and I'm there before almost everybody, including the family members. I had no anticipation of what I was walking into, but I'm standing in the hallway, feet around from where they are dealing with this young fellow, and I can hear the parents and others. I can't see anything. I'm out in the hallway, but I can hear everything that's going on. And so I'm watching as relative after relative comes in, and they're all breaking down. It's just tragedy. It's just a horrendous thing that's happened. This little boy's still alive. And he would live for several years as a quadriplegic from that point on. But I could hear the father, a man I'd never met, saying, I prayed, I've asked God, God's with us, God will take care of us. We believe that God is here. And so they were very affirming. And the years that followed after that, though the young boy, he was elementary age boy when he was hit, though he was quadriplegic from that point on, he apparently had strong Christian faith. But the parents and the family, so I'm told, and I've not heard anything in many years, so this could be very wrong, and I don't think anybody here could know who I'm talking about. They went from faith to hardness to bitterness, and after many lawsuits and so forth, it, it just went the other way as far as their faith in God. Now, I will stand before you as your pastor, and I know it's very popular today, and you can hear it on any, almost any television preacher or most of them. But if you are going to follow God only if he delivers in your health and wealth, you'll hate him. Because the first time he doesn't, you will say, you've given me a raw deal. That is an idol. If you make God only God that you worship when he delivers what you want, then you, like these people in Mark 11, you may be wave, waving your palm branch now and you may be shouting Hosanna, but you've created an idol that is not God. He does heal. He, he, he does all these things and he prospers, but we have no promises. We have no promises and guarantees in this life of exactly how things will turn out. It's different with the next life. Last of all, perhaps you desire the Messiah of religious self-righteousness. You may have a very orthodox set of doctrinal beliefs, and I hope you do. You may try hard to obey God. However, what shows up in the day-in, day-out routine relationship with God? What I mean is, you may pray and work, but what happens when something doesn't go your way? Are you explosive in your anger and in your disappointment? Do you beat yourself up after you sin and feel that you have to just uh, re-crucify yourself? 
That is not a comprehension of God's grace. There is definitely a place for guilt, and there's definitely a place for confession, and there's definitely a place for repentance. But I read this this week. Where there's true repentance, there will always be joy, and where there is true joy, there will always be repentance. If your repentance does not produce joy, you probably haven't really repented. Maybe you're just feeling bad, so to speak, to make yourself feel bad, thinking God's angry at you. I call that the Messiah of religious self-righteousness. So we could go on and on with the list. But Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a servant king. His load is easy and his burden is light. He comes in peace riding on a donkey. Next time he will come, Revelation tells us, on a white war horse with a sword. And it says at that time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Your greatest need and my greatest need today is to be saved, to know him, the true God, not the one in our hearts, not the idol that we conjure up, but a heavenly Father through Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending Christ to live and to die for such sinners as, as we are. We pray that our trust would be in his payment for sin, that we would give ourselves to you, we thank you that you are who you are, and you are far greater than we conjure up in our minds to fit our morality or to fit our situation. We pray you'd give us repentance from the idols that we construct in our hearts. And we pray you'd guard us from idolatry that can show its head in a thousand different ways. We pray for our brothers and sisters here today, some that may be bitter toward you because they believe something that, that wasn't accurate, and they have held you accountable for something that, that was wrong. We pray that you might give us submission. We pray you'd help those who suffer. We pray you'd help those who are in great need. And that you would give them comfort and grace and peace. And that you might provide. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.